Markitecture is brought to you by Pontiac Intelligence. Pontiac Intelligence is a demand-side platform designed for running high-quality CTV campaigns. With its proprietary bidder and a focus on privacy-safe era, Pontiac brings clear and powerful differentiation from the crowded DSP space. Transparent, low-tech fees, accurate forecasting, and the ability to manage thousands of simultaneous campaigns with ease. See a demo and learn more at Pontiac.media. That's Pontiac.media. Welcome to the Architecture Podcast. This is Ari Paparo. I'm joined today by Eric Franchi and Tom Triscari, an independent analyst and researcher who I've known for many years with the Lemonade Projects, the Quo Vadis newsletter, and a very interesting project called Programmatic the Musical. We'll get to Tom in a moment, some housekeeping first. So um, I, I first, I want to make an official apology. The last couple of weeks, the audio has been pretty bad on this podcast, and no one likes to listen to bad audio. So we're upgrading our audio. Hopefully, this sounds great. If it doesn't, please let me know. Secondly, quick update on the publication schedule. So if you're subscribed to our Spotify or Apple feeds, you probably noticed that we have separated Justify Your Existence with Startups. It's coming out every Wednesday. A really quick listen, five minutes. Should be great to listen to. And we're also putting our full vendor interviews. This week, we had a great interview with Eric Sufert of a mobile attribution company. Those are coming out on Monday. They're only on the feed for a week. If you want the full access to the vendor interviews, you have to subscribe at Markitecture TV. Every uh, subscription is worth it. Over 100 hours of content on Markitecture TV. All right, enough of the housekeeping. Tom, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, guys. Uh, so I just want to jump into the the most crazy topic here. Like we'll we'll talk about stocks, we'll talk about the ANA report, we'll talk about a lot of good stuff. But let's talk about programmatic the musical. Yes, you know when you spend a lot of time doing valuation work and just in the numbers and like on you know, log data or in financial stuff, you need a little bit of something to break up the monotony. So the, it's more of the creative side of things. But the long story short is Can Lions 222 before that, goofing around with some friends. And I thought, well, God, there's, it's such a folly programmatic when you really look at it from a certain angle. What if we made a musical about it? Had some hats made, wore them around Can. I did the same thing last year, but with actually a launch. And now, you know, wrote a very, what I think is a very interesting script. And we're releasing it, you know, scene by scene in episodic fashion. It's really just a fun side project, just to kind of, Lighten things up. And are you actually going to put this on? Oh, yeah, definitely. So, you know, I've never made a musical before. I don't know many people who have, but that is not going to stop me. So uh, I live in Westport, Connecticut. We have a very famous playhouse there. I'd like to eventually do it there. But in order to get there, people were asking, well, what's the story? So I wrote a movie script, sort of like, you know, catch me if you can. And the producers started as movie scripts and they were adopted into musicals. So it's easier to write a script than to figure out the layering of the musical part, um, which we'll do later. But I wanted to get the story out and just keep things keep things moving. What happens in programmatic musical? Don't give away the whole thing. What's the what's the core of it? Okay, so it's basically if you can think of a combination between some things out of Wolf of Wall Street, some things out of the movie Wall Street, the original one, some things out of the Big Short with. Um, elements of you know kind of from a musical perspective the folly of rocky horror picture show it's a mashup with some mel brooks undertones in it but it does take a financial side of how things actually happen 
going back from the very, very beginning, how we got to where we are today. And we'll see, uh, we'll see how it unfolds. So it's like Le Miz, but instead of stealing bread, it's an MFA site. There will be an element of that in there. And by the way, in the current script, there's certain people that I know, like yourself, that I know better than other folks. And there's certain cameo roles that would be, for example, when Richard Thaler and um, Selena Gomez came out in cameo in the big short, that, if you think about that from that perspective. So uh, I'll run those scenes by you before I put them out. Wait, there. I'm in the musical? <laughs> you could be. <laughs> Do you want to sing us a couple of no. verses for, for, for the audience? I have a terrible singing voice. No, and we, but we do have, there's been several songs that have been made um, both by hand and also, you know, experimenting with ChatGPT, which, you know, if you ask ChatGPT to go write a song about programmatic and say, make Sympathy for the Devil by the Stones, but instead of the devil, make it about uh, the agency, a, a media agency as, for example, the, the antagonist. And it will write something amazing. Uh, and then you can, of course, you got to edit it a little bit, but it does some really funny things there. Um, okay, I'm going to read a little bit. Interior, college dorm room, 1999. A college kid is plugging away in his desktop computer. Beige packages are everywhere. Jonah Goodrich, a junior at fancy Ivy League college, is on financial aid, but you would never know it. The camera pans to a poster on the wall of Milton Friedman. It says, there is no such thing as a free lunch. And then, and then Jonah says, very dramatically, this is like the Hamilton moment. Everything is free on the internet. Exactly. Exactly. Amazing. So in the beginning, because we have to look, programmatic is a very complex topic for like a mass audience. So for similar to the big short, how do you explain collateralized debt obligations and the mess that you know the world got in? You have to start out quick and use these quick shots and smash cuts to get to the audience into a learning mode to get to what 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 this thing is and what how we got to where we are today. And then the rest of the story will unfold. Day by day, guys, day by day. But it's a fun project for sure. Sounds it's like the it. most fun thing I do when I'm writing because I, I literally could be typing it and my wife will be, what are you laughing at? And I'll be playing around with how I want to do things. And I'll tell her, she said, you are out of your mind. I said, listen, you spend 17 years in programmatic and you'll be out of your mind too. <laughs> you called programmatic a folly. Unpack that. So a folly would be more of a layman's term for a paper I, uh, a working paper I published in 220 called, you know, programmatic lemon market game where Programmatic has all of these characteristics of a lemon market, but traditionally in a lemon market, either it gets fixed or it crashes. It seems like this market is suspended by some pretty amazing beliefs. And when you, you know, take things from the angle of, say, Chris Kane at Jounce Media, where cheap reach seems to be, you know, seems to be the name of the game, you're going to end up with these inventory quality problems. And then you end up in what is now today a $90 billion business, meaning open web programmatic money that leaves a DSP, according to Chris Kane. And yet, I wonder how much advertising is actually getting done, right? So for example, before I was doing what I'm doing now, I consulted with the biggest brands. I went all around the world for very many large brands, many of them CPGs, talking about ad quality, talking about working media, talking about viewability, measured impressions, IVT, talking about everything but advertising, right? And that kind of makes it sort of like very odd when you step back and look at that. You're saying, we are in the advertising business at the end of the day, but is advertising getting done or is just media spending getting done, right? Right. So uh, I, I love your concept of the lemon market. Can you explain what that is to uh, listeners who may not know that term? 
Yeah, sure. So um, George Akerlof, uh, Nobel Prize winning economist, wrote a paper in 1970. It's, if not the most cited econ paper, it's it's in the top five or so. Uh, his wife is Janet Yellen. She's the you know Secretary of Treasury. He wrote a paper in 1970 about lemon market theory, which basically is a concept of uh, related to information asymmetry, which all it says is this, that if sellers do not provide information about the underlying quality of the thing that's being sold, then buyers can't appropriately price it, and particularly in auction environments, right? And it started with uh, the main example in the 70s was used cars. You'd go to a used car dealer. You have no idea of the history of this car whatsoever. You don't know anything about it. And so it makes it very difficult to price the used car. And what happens is you would tend, a buyer or a group of buyers would tend to price things down until there are no sellers left because there's no buyers left because they leave the market and the whole thing crashes. That hasn't obviously happened with programmatic. But the characteristics of information asymmetry, where buyers truly, as far as all the data I've seen and, and, and also the behavioral economics of it, buyers have very weak or little information on the thing that they're actually buying. It's in kind these of options. ironic because the old complaint of publishers in programmatic was that buyers had all the information because buyers have audience data and publishers don't. Uh, so the expression was, uh, they're drilling for oil on my land. Because the buyers using DSP have audience data, but the opposite is also true, which is the buyer kind of has no idea what the quality of the placement is, other than you know very raw data like the domain. It's nytimes.com, probably good, but it could be nytimes.com on some you know deep archive page that you know no one ever goes to, right? Um, so it, there is a lot of information asymmetry, and you named your your consulting company the Lemonade Projects, right? Yeah, it was after that paper. So that paper provided, I think, a strong thesis to try to go do something new. If you look at, if you're on the website and you look at the sort of the project page, the projects are varying, right? Including the musical, including things I'm doing with the newsletter Quo Vadis, uh, which is more of a, of a looking at things from a financial perspective. Well, I know we're going to get into that. But um, what you just said is very interesting because, yes, on the one hand, you could make the argument, well, I'm doing audience targeting. Well, you could do all the audience targeting you want except for if the ad's not viewable, it doesn't matter, right? If it's not to a human, right. it doesn't matter. And there's lots of incentives, I think, in the market. There's more incentives to bring quality down than to, than to bring quality up. And now, of course, look, later today, I'm going to be speaking at Rob Beeler's Navigator event. You know, it's very publisher-focused. And um, Picard, he just had a nice article on Ad Exchanger just yesterday about sort of this really bad situation that publishers are in because they've they've gotten themselves there and it's been sort of a race to the bottom as far as quality goes. And so you have to wonder from an advertising perspective. And when I say that, I mean, you know, Bill Birnbach, David Ogilvie, uh, you know, real doing real advertising that has incremental gain as an investment for the cash that's being outlaid. What are you getting in return for it? I think it's hard to make an argument actually that if you really looked at it, you have to wonder if programmatic is able to right, that's, that's Eric not. Picard, formerly Pandora, a friend of the pod. So let's talk about your newsletter. It's very financially oriented about public stocks. Um, let's start with your investment philosophy. You seem to be a value investor. Uh, you go from fundamentals up. Yep, it's basically it's classic Warren Buffett, and then I mean, look, everything I do, uh, I took a very uh, life changing type of course in 
in business school on valuation. It's a book called Valuation. It's by Tim Kohler, and it's from the McKinsey Finance Institute. I recommend that. I mean, to me, it's recommended reading for every manager because valuation ultimately is not about what you come up with with a valuation. It's how to understand the levers from a management perspective and how to manage a business. And so there's things in it, for example, the section on growth, you know, the evidence is totally clear within the financial discipline that one of the worst ways to grow is by spending is advertising. Be why. And I know probably Brian Weiser would probably take a different view on that, um, which is always an interesting discussion with him, but because you can retaliate. Advertising is the easiest thing to retaliate within a peer group of competitors, right? But then you take another aspect of growth, which is a great way to grow, which is to grow a category. Like say when P&G goes to uh, more third world countries or and, and basically they teach the values of hygiene and using soap. So you grow the soap category. Sure, Unilever is going to get some love there, but P&G is going to get love too by selling more soap in a market that will grow and everybody gets a piece of the action. But advertising in and of itself is not the greatest way to grow. In fact, another article on Ad Exchanger I highly recommend reading is the interview that was just done with State Farm, I believe it was, if I'm not mistaken. And it, that's a classic example is, you know, re- classic z- example of retaliation. So you can't watch college football without seeing one different insurance commercial after the other. And you have to wonder, you know, I've had my same insurance company since I was 16 because my parents had it. I'm not changing. So it, it seems kind of like, wow, are you really getting a gain from this from a real true ROI perspective? Anyway. Right. Yeah, I mean, seeing seeing ads on major sporting events is a good way to determine which companies have excessive margins because they're the ones who can afford the ads. Uh, but let's talk about the ad tech companies, the public ad tech companies. Uh, so in our show notes prepping for this, uh, you basically said, I'm going to quote, the entire sector is incredibly overvalued. Uh, so uh, let's talk about that. Let's talk about some, let's name some names, Trade Desk, IAS, uh, who's overvalued and why? Yeah, well, so in my newsletter, uh, I track 18 publicly traded ad tech companies. I also have another tracking portfolio in MarTech. Of course, that's going to be dominated by Shopify and HubSpot as far as returns go. Everyone else is sort of not doing great. But as far as ad tech goes, you know, Trade Desk is the grand majority of the returns on an equal dollar portfolio basis, yet from a fundamental DCF perspective, according to how I write my assumptions and look at the world into, the, in, into my model, you know, and forecast free cash flows and then bring it back on a discounted value basis at the cost of capital, it's very, very, very hard. You have to do some amazing things in your forecast to get to the current valuation. The DCF is discounted cash flow for those who are not. Yeah. So discounted cash flow, basically for the audience, it's very simple when you think about it. So if you won the lottery today, they're going to give you a choice. Do you want to take, well, let's say it's 10 million in winnings. Do you want to take the whole 10 million now today, or do you want it in equal chunks over 20 years? Right. But the trouble is, is that a million dollars 20 years from now is worth a lot less than a million dollars in your hands today. Right. So that's effectively what you're doing. You're in, in, a, in a discounted cash flow model. You're running your numbers to get to what cash flow is generated into the future, and then discounting it back because of the time value of money to understand where what it is today. What is that, and how does it compare to the current valuation of the company in the market? 
Yeah, I, I think when people ask me about the trade desk stock, I don't do as much analysis as you do. I don't do any analysis, but uh, the basic theme I say is like, if you're buying the tr stock, you're betting that the $200 billion global television business is going to go programmatic and that the trade desk is going to take some percentage of that. A huge share. Yeah, that's the, that's the problem with valuation. They really have to have a huge share to make it worthwhile. Yeah, and you have some other problems there too. One is, if you look at what they call, um, so basically variable costs, right? Platform operations. So the variable cost of the business to crunch all the numbers, right? And there's other things in that cost. There's people, there's amortization, there's a lot of things, but that's a variable cost and it's 18, 19% of net revenue, right? So net revenue being the result of 20% take rates on gross ad spend that comes through the platform. Then you have a very high stock-based compensation is coming out, which is a non-cash expense, but an expense nonetheless. And then just looking at just straight up SG&A, it's very, very high, right? So from a general rule of thumb perspective, looking at any of these businesses saying, look, I want to invest in businesses that can generate a 20% operating margin, meaning an EBIT margin, right? And then after that EBIT margin, you're going to have taxes that you have to deal with, which is, you know, generally speaking, marginal tax rates are 27, 26% federal, state, and local. And these businesses have to have do some, particularly the trade desk, I would say also double verify. I just can't get there. I mean, some amazing things have to happen in these businesses, both on the revenue side and the cost side. Now, I could make an argument on the cost side where AI could take out a lot of the labor costs. So for example, if you just run a regression and you regress trade desk net revenue or gross ad spend to employee growth, they grow in tandem. There's no separation. There's very little separation there. So that's a problem. And they have some really nice offices too. They've been investing in some extremely top tier offices on Bryant Park and places like that. I bet they do. Cheap. Now, now to be fair though, Brian Weezer would say, well, it, it, I think it was, um, he gave the example of, uh, of like Tesla when Tesla was very highly valued, right? That's really a compliment to management saying the market believes in management that you're going to find a way in the future to justify your current valuation, right? And the other thing is, I think what uh, Kieran O'Kane said about Jeff Green, I mean, this is a once in a lifetime CEO, right? This guy is it's unbelievable, right? It's very difficult, as you know. It's very difficult to build a company with 3,000 plus employees and then go public, well, go public, deal with all of that, and also be a, as, as Ben Horowitz or Andreessen would say, you know, to be the keeper of the story, right? Does the CEO know what to do? Can the CEO get others to do what he or she knows? And that's a resounding yes with him, right? So while I think it's overvalued from a value investor perspective, from a store of value, it could reach a point where it gets interesting. You know, how long have you been bearish on TTD? I mean, if you look at ever since pretty much, I mean, geez, the run up during, during the COVID was incredible. Right. And the market enthusiasm for it, it seems just a little bit over the top. And I don't think there's a full appreciation for, like we said earlier, of, of particularly in gross ad spend. Not only do you have to capture a huge chunk of gross ad spend that's out there, Right. But you have to keep 20% take rates at the same time. It's just a lot. You move to TV and the publishers are very powerful. They, don't, they, they exert a lot more pressure than the desktop people do. Um, so who, should, who do you have your eye on that you think is fairly valued or maybe undervalued? Well, this is where 
for example, uh, the guys at Arete Research, uh, you know, Rocco Strauss and Richard Kramer that we've always for a couple years now have always liked. I like Critio a lot. As far as the 18 companies in the ad tech sector goes, why? Great management, really good board. When I say management, I mean CEO, CFO. Um, I think they're just really good at investing shareholder cash. Book Logic was an incredibly good buy at $250 million. I think IPL Web, another really interesting buy for lots of interesting reasons that I think the market would generally miss this sort of the deep strategy involved there. And you have to go back to the roots of the company with J.B. Rudell. I mean, those hardcore strategic and Benoit, who was the CFO who took it public, you have to go back to those strategic cultural roots of the company that I are still there. There's fierce competitors. And I think what Gleason's doing with uh, SCRO, I think is... He's doing a great job. And I think there's a, it's, a, it's a company that generates free cash flow, period. Um, and I think there's more to come in the future. Well, two companies that I think are interesting as public companies are uh, Outbrain and Taboola. Um, everyone loves to hate on these companies, but they're like trading at 1x revenue and they're, and they're growing. And uh, Taboola just did that deal with Yahoo. Is the public market misunderstanding those companies? Yeah, it's interesting. Well, Taboola far outforms... Outbrain in all the key financial metrics. One of them, for example, that I always look at is capital efficiency, not to get too technical, but it's an important number because it basically says, all right, a company has, you make some adjustments to the balance sheet to come up with invested capital. That's the money that's put to work that's going to hopefully create returns in the future, right? It's basically, it's like management is basically a steward of capital, right? And they're supposed to be good money managers. So, Taboola, I think, has been better than that. The Yahoo deal is super interesting for sure. And if we do get to Yahoo, I think it's the most interesting private company for sure out there today. I wrote a evaluation on that. I have a, I have a webinar coming up on that valuation uh, the week after next. But Taboola outperforms Outbrain uh, in all the key metrics. Probably some management differences there too as well. But the underlying business is, is hard for me to get around when we go back to what we talked about with lemon markets and ad quality, right? So MFA sites, to me, it's a gray area. There's nothing illegal or unethical about it, but they're there. You can either buy them or not buy them. But it just seems that a public company being attached to that world, given what we've seen in the last, I don't know, since June around all of the trade press around MFA, which hasn't really affected the company. So as far as investors go, they're kind of dismissing it um, and thinking that things will continue on the way they will. There's, I think there's a, good, there's a good reason for that if you want to hear it. It's kind of interesting. You know, if you're a hedge fund and you're, you're betting on the sector, right? Ad tech. One of the interesting sort of theses is that what are you really betting on? You're betting in large part that marketers and advertisers and I, have, I get my word of the day from this dictionary thing in my email, advertisers and marketers, they will never get heterodox. They won't, they'll never get real. They're not going to get real. And they're in a position now where this thing is so big, I think that the market is betting that ad tech will always be a couple steps ahead of marketers and marketers won't, won't, they, they won't shift budgets. They won't change things independent of whatever ad quality they're getting. So you're making a bet that marketers just keep pouring money in because it's what happens. Or they're getting value from the technology and the solutions. And it's a good category and it's growing and it's taking share 
And that's like sort of the other side of it, right? Oh, you mean the investors are getting value from it? No, I mean, marketers are getting value from it. Why well, else would they be deploying these co- the, the, the budgets? Well, I, you know, I have an interesting article coming out about that next week, which is basically I did some Algebra 101 and I broke down the, R, the ROAS formula into actually these component parts. And when you actually do that, you find out that, wow, is ROAS really real that you're reporting or is it, is, is there success bias? Is there cognitive bias? How much information bias goes into the ROAS? It's just hard for me from when I put the puzzle together to believe that there's that much success out there in a, in a competitive market. I, I just think that vanity and vanity is then seems to be a pretty good place to be. Well, it's, I mean, fundamentally, the attribution problem has been the biggest issue for ad tech for since the very, very beginning. And for a while, people were pushing things like ghost ad methodologies, but the removal of cookies made ghost ad sort of infeasible. So really, um, the trick is like turning off all your ads, going dark, see what happens, uh, and then go back to business as usual. But a lot of people don't want to do that. Well, let's let's take a break. There's a great conversation. Let's take a break, and then we'll come right back with uh, the news of the week. This is a message from our sponsor. I'd like to introduce you to Publica by IAS, the award-winning CTV ad server trusted by some of the biggest streaming services and smart TV manufacturers globally. Publica helps a growing number of leading AVOD and fast services to power the programmatic ad break decisioning via products, including a unified auction, server-side ad insertion, and a demand-agnostic ad server built from the ground up around streaming. Head to getpublica.com to find out how they help CTV publishers to grow their advertising revenues and provide streaming audiences with linear-like TV ad break experiences. All right, we're back. Um, So first, I have an update from last week. So last week, we talked about YouTube's growth in their latest earnings, and Richard Kramer from Arite, who uh, you mentioned earlier, reached out to me, clarify a really interesting point, which is that YouTube subscription revenue, like the NFL ticket, is all considered other revenue on Google's books, not uh, YouTube revenue, uh, which I think is kind of fascinating. Uh, so uh, YouTube TV, all that subscription stuff goes into other, um, which uh, makes YouTube actually substantially larger than I thought it was, uh, which means their growth was also probably a lot larger than the uh, growth they reported, which was quite good. So thank you, Richard, for the clarification. He is my uh, freelance fact checker. Um, so some agency news. So I tweeted, uh, the fact that I really don't care about this news. So I'm kind of challenging Eric and, uh, and Tom to tell me why I should care. Um, I care personally that, uh, so Kirk McDonald, who I've known for some time, I care about his personal career, his happiness, his general well-being. but he's out at Group M, uh, and he was, uh, was a CEO of Group M in the Americas. So that's my straw man. Why should I care about people coming and going from agencies? I tend to agree with you on that one. So it's going to be a hard one for me to push back and give you, give you the, the, the counter argument because these are, these are such big businesses and they operate in, you know, such a unique way as it relates to acquiring businesses, you know, large headcount, how they work with customers that, um, you know, unless a CEO brings either really transformational change and improvements or like totally, you know, sort of like S is the bed. You know, it's a little bit of like, why, why should we care? I think, um, you know, Kirk is, uh, you know, an ad tech native and has had a bunch of like great roles that he's, um, he's done fantastic in. So I think, you know, this may speak to, you know, uh, sort of like 
ad tech strategy at Group M not being able to like really be implemented and drive growth. Um, but that's that. I think uh, yeah, it's a little a little hard to take the other side of it. Yeah, it's very hard for me as well to take the other side of it, just because. Look, I mean, well, how long he was in that role? Three years, I think. Three years, yeah, from twenty twenty. Stocks down from that. From the, go back three years. Stocks down. Uh, go back to the five year line. It's down even more. It's not great. Not his fault, obviously. There's a lot of people there. Uh, I mean, Mark Reed's at the top of the food chain. I don't think it matters in the slightest. I mean, look, IPG just went through a massive restructuring, right? People moved from, they moved from IPG, they went over to Group M and vice versa. I don't think it ever matters. I think the only thing that matters, and I have a, I have a note coming out on this too, because I think it's a super interesting topic, that a lot of people like to pick on agencies and they forget that agencies have shareholders. They also forget that agencies pay a quarterly dividend, which is a 5% dividend yield, and their payout ratio is like 45-50% of net income. It happens every quarter. It's actually a very good store of value, right? It's like you put your money in, you're, they're not going away for what we just talked about, about sort of the marketer sort of mindset. Marketers are always going to need agencies. And that's all that matters. And so independent of one person coming in and out at the top or in any role up and down the ladder, all that matters is that the agencies perform financially to pay out that dividend. And think about this, when procurement comes in and they are on paper, on paper, they believe they've gotten, um, they've gotten the agency down to effective three, 4% fees, effective, whether they're paying FTEs or not, it doesn't matter three or 4% effective fees on media management. Yet at the end of the day, agencies have always paid their dividend. Look at their, look at their, their profit consistency, right? So they're still somehow coming up with making 15, 16, 17, maybe more percent, right? Like in the old days, but yet on paper, procurement thinks they got to win, but in the real world, the agencies are still making what they have to make because they have shareholders and they need to generate profits. It's an interesting right world there. It's an interesting business. It's not a tech business. You know, we think of tech as the equity value and the growth of the stock price is the only thing that matters, but like you say dividends are a much bigger part of agencies valuations. The CEO of an agency is effectively the senior salesperson. Someone once told me that WBP has a thousand CEOs in its organization, uh, which sounds crazy. You know, I don't, it's I don't not know if when that's you grow an accurate number. When you grow through acquisition, it's not like I know. I know a CEO um, of you know a specialist agency within Group M within WPP, and it's just like one healthcare focused focused agency. And doesn't Rashad Tabakwala call them the cockroaches? Like you can't get rid of the agencies, and he means it as a comp. Oh, that was that was Weezer on CNBC. No, I, was it oh, I Weezer? Think, I think Rashad the cockroach thing. Yeah, it was it was Rashad first, and as Tom, you you were sort of you know kind of talk, talking about it. That that's what popped into my mind as well. And I think that technology is how they make up those fifteen, sixteen, seventeen percent. Well, and principle based trading, which exactly. which we, which Weezer's been on on his on his newsletter, Madison and Wall, he's been talking about this consistently, particularly Omnicom, where it's a very significant piece. And advertisers, marketers are playing a role. They're saying, "Look, it's okay. We're fine." If you're managing our media budgets and if you're buying media for one price and marking it up and selling it for another in a variety of different ways, they're fine with it. Because look, think about it from the marketer's perspective. Say a brand manager of, of I don't know, a beer brand or a wine brand or a car brand, whatever. They're in the factory. They're in the fields. They're understanding the product because they're spending most of their time with creative, right? They don't spend much time with the media agency because 
that's not the product sort of the product market is is in the factory and with the packaging and with everything else and that goes into the, with and working with the creative agency. So they're spending all their time there. They leave it to the media agency, but they need those staffers. So when procurement comes in and thinks that they got 3% effective fees on paper, from the brand manager's perspective, they're like, look, I need these resources to get my job done. If you're going to be doing principle-based trading and you need to make money to basically fund staff, go for it. There's an interesting economic flow that happens there that I think that most people either aren't aware of or don't want to think about it or talk about it, but it's the real world. Right, you right. Know? It feels a little bit like a bank where you're not really sure how they make the money um, as long as they don't break any laws, it's pretty much fine. Um, exactly. While we're on agencies, so the, another big piece of agency news, which was that Omnicom has bought Flywheel from Ascentiel for $850 million. Um, and so a couple of interesting points here. First of all, it's a big price tag. Uh, secondly, Flywheel is a specialist agency that focuses on retail, not necessarily retail media. They focus on retail and helping uh, sellers on Amazon and other platforms to make more money. And Essential is essentially exiting the uh, the services business and to focus on their events. They're the owner of the Cannes Festival, and they also own um, Hudson MX, which is a competitor to MediaOcean. Uh, and I think there were some rumors that Hudson MX is on the chopping block as well. So big restructure for Essential. The CEO of Essential is going with this acquisition. So he's leaving Essential and joining mm-hmm. Omnicom as part of it. Any thoughts, Eric? Do you want to jump on this one? It's a big price tag. It was $800 million And uh, you, you had um, a, uh, a LinkedIn post from an analyst. Maybe we should put it in the show notes or, or, or somebody tweeted it. I think it was like 30x EBITDA. I think it's super interesting now that this is in the hands of an agency because by all you know, sort of uh, means, it's an interesting biz that's got not just the commerce but the ability to extend into retail media. So I would assume that's the that's the bet. And uh, Omnicom probably needs to get on the offensive when it comes to commerce and retail. You've got Publicis with Citrus Ed. You've got IPG with a lot of those interesting data assets. You know, it sounds like they sort of needed to make a play here, and this yeah. is a good play. Yeah, I was going to mention I was going to mention the publicist acquisition, uh, and then you got to go back all the way to the Hook Logic acquisition by Critio that we talked about earlier, well ahead of its time. And then look at what what Brian Gleason's been doing. So I think it was on Ad Exchange. This is like I don't know six or so months ago, uh, an interview with him. One of the first things he did was created an education sort of certificate program for agency staffers, and they've certified six thousand at the time six thousand of these agency folks, hands on keyboard people in retail media. So you get the little retail media badge from Critio, you've been certified, but you're creating a groundswell there. It's a brilliant strategy, right? So that's, that, and they're, so they're a little bit ahead of the game. And I think, uh, yeah, agencies are just looking at this big juicy number that I think it was Critio's CEO who put it out saying, what, 110 billion globally, 42 billion ex-China, ex-Amazon. and 140 at- billion. Yeah, big number, very big number. And so, and I'm sure, you know, that's where media budgets are flowing and they need to gear up and get some staff around it. So it's a pretty big price tag though. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. And I think there is a general trend of, of these agency holding groups to buy agencies that are more specialized, more tech driven, as opposed to just being sort of a blob of headcount that is marked up um, because they need to differentiate. And those services are better developed by small nimble agencies that can then be acquired. 
I guess the last last uh, topic before we we call it is in the least unexpected M and A news ever. Uh, Disney has agreed to buy out Comcast's interest in Hulu. Uh, the price is tentative. They they basically are paying the minimum price on the contract, which I think is eight and a half billion dollars, and then an independent appraisal is going to determine if there's any more there. Uh, it helps Disney concentrate now that Disney has two services, Disney Plus and Hulu, and helps Comcast gives them an injection of cash, which is, you know, they don't really need a lot of cash. They have a lot of cash, but then they also can focus on Peacock. I guess, is there anything uh, that the advertising world should be thinking about, about this change, or is it just more of the same? Yeah, there's no, I mean, look, there's no change to the available inventory. There's a change of ownership, right? And so what Comcast elected to pull their trigger, which uh, and then there's the, at a, at a current at a agreed previously agreed upon number right, and then now there's this extra piece that they got to figure out. Disney when Disney when Disney bought Fox, they ended up with two thirds of the thing, so they were already in a great position to get the rest of it. I don't know if it changes much. There's still going to be you know the things like Ian Whitaker talks about and others around you know content production, those costs subscriber growth, extracting money, ad supported versus not, et cetera. So I don't see much of a change besides owners. I thought the Netflix, basically a Netflix blog post was um, was actually more interesting than this. I don't know if you guys caught that. Um, so there was a, a blog post on the- Take us through it. Yeah, a blog post on the on the Netflix um, corporate site, basically commemorating or you know, having a, a milestone for, for one year into um, the Netflix ad business. And they basically recapped where they're at, which is, uh, and I think this is an interesting number, there's 15 million ad-only subscribers. So it's still really, really tiny. But they talk about how they've integrated with um, the you know, key measurement providers, i.e. DV and IIS. They talked about you know, some of the innovation around um, ad formats. And then they you know, put, put a sort of, you know, kind of kind of teaser out in terms of what the, the 2024 roadmap is, which is a little bit more of the same. Um, in terms of uh, more uh, measurement providers, uh, particularly international, more ad formats with a nod towards you know some of these interactive focused ones, so using QR codes, so on and so forth. And then you know they said they're going to have like you know bigger and better uh, sponsorship offerings. So I thought it was you know good. I think they're following a good playbook. I think being open to third party measurement providers for Netflix is a really really good thing. So I, um, it feels to me that they're ready to step on the gas for 2024, but you know, they've got a ways to go being, you know, 15 million subscribers. Yeah. And if you look at, if you look at the recent macro news that just a whole slew of things that just came out and we're in this very interesting cycle where all the indicators look like the economy's in pretty decent shape and the consumer's in okay shape, except for savings are down. All the COVID savings are getting depleted. Wages have not caught up with crazy inflation, right? And so. If you look at your average household in the U.S., say, and get, or, or you, of course, elsewhere as well, there's a pinch that's going to happen, right? Households are going to get tighter. I'll tell you, in my household, my wife just came up to me two weeks ago. We we're in the kitchen and she said she was looking at the bills and she said, since when are we paying $25 for Netflix? I thought it was $14.99. And I said, I don't know. They snuck it in there. And we didn't notice it. And I said, let's cut it. Let's go to the ad supported tier. Let's just check it out, right? Uh, and we asked the kids how much they were using it. So I pulled that trigger. And then just this morning, I got my thing from Apple TV that said I'm going up from $6.99 a month to $10.99 a month. So guess who else is going to get cut out of the household budget? And it's not about affordability, really. It's just a matter of principle. And also from my 
being in the industry to experiment a little bit. So I'm not the best use case. But I think that the average consumer is going to feel a pinch. And, and I think that could be a boost to, to Netflix as we finish this bottom of the cycle. Yeah. And, and just going back to the Hulu news, I think Disney has a, has a really interesting set of cards in their hand because they have two services and they could differentiate those two more easily. You can imagine a world where you know, Disney, the Disney Plus ends up being totally uh, ad free, but expensive. And Hulu has multiple tiers. You know, they, they just have a lot of uh, levers to play with. And they're incredibly strategic. I mean, that is one of the most strategically good companies in its history. And if you go back to 1923, when Disney can own something horizontally or vertically, it will eventually own it. Yeah. And to bring it even further back to the beginning of the conversation or early in the conversation, this is why, at least from my standpoint, hard to bet against TTD, because this ad-supported streaming thing is only getting started. That, that's the thing. But even when you do that bet, though, which I agree with you, I don't say that they're not going to get capture an interesting share of it. It's like the, the amount they have to capture and at 20% take rates. That take rate number is really important, right? Because imagine they had $100 million in gross ad spend, but only at 10% take rates. Yeah, I think that's the really key issue. All right. Um, let's. I, I want to close out this conversation. Do, do you guys want to like harmonize a little bit with everything is free on the internet? Tom, get us started. Come on. These are your lyrics. Everything is free on the internet. Like up on front of the stage of the pragmatic, the musical. How does, how does your hero Jonas say the line? How does, how does Jonas say the line? Everything is free on the internet. Yeah. Well, is it like he, Hamilton? He, like everything's turned, free on the internet. He turns straight to the camera. He's cause he's busy in his room cause he's hacking away, right? He's doing his thing. And he just turns to the camera and he, you can see the poster above him. And he says, everything's free on the internet. Something like that. And then the music comes in, it swells as a dum-dum, right? And then it comes back in act two, right? When everyone, uh, when he's having his down moment. I just posted scenes, the sequence six and seven this morning. And so we're back in it with him. And then we're going to shift over to a very different part of the world after we get out of there. <laughs> there could be some Russian hackers saying, everything is free on the internet. Wow. Then, you know? You're pretty damn close. You'll see. <laughs> there's, a, there's a formula here. All right. I'm looking forward yeah. to it. Um, and I'm looking forward to my cameo. All right. Let's, let's call this. This is a great episode. Eric, always a pleasure. And Tom, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you for subscribing to Marketecture. New interviews are added every week at Marketecture.tv and your favorite podcasting app.